Okay, hello, welcome everyone to our webinar today on um, leading through crisis, how to have supportive conversations. And this is going to be presented by Anthony Gibbs, who is the CEO of Centis. And um, before I um, introduce um, Centis and Anthony, I just want to say there's a Q&A panel on the bottom of your webinar uh, panel. Please um, enter any questions there. If you want to chat directly to me, you can use the chat panel, but direct the questions um, directly to me. Um, following the webinar sometime later today, we will send out a video recording and a podcast and a copy of the slides. So, um, Without any further delay, Centis works with clients who have hit a plateau in their safety results um, or, or other clients who are looking to achieve the next level of safety excellence. With more than 15 years of research into workplace safety and psychology, Centis fosters safer, healthier, environmentally responsible and efficient workplaces and practices. Um, as CEO, Anthony is responsible for leading Centis on its mission to change the lives of individuals and organizations for the better every day. He has worked with thousands of people across hundreds of organizations globally to develop safety culture solutions that support strategies and enable the person component to reach its full potential. So with that, over to you, Anthony, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Sarah, and welcome to everyone. So today's session, as mentioned, is called Leading Through Crisis, with a particular focus on how to have supportive conversations. As mentioned, I'm Anthony Gibbs, CEO of Centis. Uh, I joined Centis about 13 years ago, uh, coming in as a registered psychologist after having worked in the community and clinical space for a long time. So uh, this is a, an area and a topic uh, that takes me back to my roots. I was drawn to Centis by its mission to change the lives of individuals and organisations for the better every day. Uh, and we've done that through the application of psychology and neuroscience uh, through our coaching, training and assessment uh, tools. Uh, we've had over 400 organisations that we've been able to positively help make a positive change and over 160,000 individuals. So how are we going to tackle today? <coughs> we're going to tackle today in three stages. Firstly, we're going to look at an overview of resilience versus struggling to cope. So we're going to set the scene a little bit for the day uh, so we can understand uh, what, the, what the definitions are. We're then going to look at specific signs that might trigger us to to believe that a particular team member may be struggling. And then we'll be looking at how to have effective conversations to support people uh, through this particular period of their lives. So three very important topics that we're going, or three very important areas that we're going to cover in this important topic. <clears throat> One of the tools uh, I'd like to share at the start of this session is a tool taken out of cognitive behavioral therapy. And what it says, what this tool suggests is that People's general well-being is made up of the three circles up on the screen. Uh, their, their physical well-being, their psychological well-being, and their social well-being. And as you can see, these overlap and they impact on individuals' emotional state and their overall well-being state. So when I talk about these three areas, uh, a little bit of definition. So a person's psychological state uh, talks, about their, talks about their sense of confidence and self-efficacy. What's their overall sense of self-worth? and the degree that they feel positively challenged. So that's psychological. When we talk about physical, we're talking about um, an individual's physical health. Things such as sleep, diet, exercise, pain, pre-existing health conditions can all impact on the physical component. And lastly is the social world. 
uh, and this is focused predominantly on relationships and how that and the quality and number of those relationships. So do I feel valued? Do I feel appreciated? And do I have a network of people that I can connect with, talk to and have fun with? The reason that I draw your attention to this model is to highlight the current changes that many of our people face when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, for those Australian listeners, it, it, it's even more significant than that it's been a big 12 months. We've had droughts, then fires, then floods. And now this, for some people, it's going to feel like those stresses are never going to end. But coronavirus in particular presents a unique set of challenges for the people that we're, that we're leading. Because of the social isolation that many of us have been uh, required to take, the social connections, the social outlets that we would normally have uh, aren't, possibly aren't as regular and aren't as frequent. And although they might be happening over things such as Zoom or, or whatever the case may be, a face-to-face -face contact will be sorely missed by some people in our community. Often people's social outlet will, will be aligned with their physical outlet as well. So with gyms and, and a range of different uh, physical outlets closed, a number of people have lost, again, another way of managing their well-being. So you can see that there's real potential if people haven't made conscious steps to replace the things that they've lost in these areas, uh, for these circles to contract and, and for them to start to, to start to see people's well-being being taken nosedive. In the psychological space, again, much of the same. So is there, you know, are people feeling the same sense of connectedness to their work, the same sense of worth, worthiness? You know, a lot of people have been asked to take reductions in pay, uh, have been asked that they won't be doing their job as they usually would and might not feel as successful as they usually would. So all of these areas in the current environment present real risk factors for the people that we're looking to support, uh, to advocate for support and lead. So today, as I mentioned, is really about understanding the signs of when someone's well-being might not be uh, where, where it could be, um, or perhaps someone's really starting to struggle and knowing how to advocate, support and lead. Again, this is a topic close to my heart, not only because of my uh, training as a psychologist, working in uh, the community and, and incident and uh, accident and emergency intake and, and things like that, but it's an area of passion because of an experience I had as a young leader in management. So, and this has always stuck with me. Now I'm going to talk about a, an experience that I had. I'm going to obviously change some details to keep the experience anonymous, but let's imagine the person I'm talking about is the person on the screen, Jeff. <clears throat> so Jeff worked in my team for a number of years. Uh, he was an incredibly high performer. Uh, a brilliant, a brilliant individual, uh, very intellectual, very clever, uh, had exacting standards, very conscientious, diligent, and had routines that you could set your clock to. Over a period of time, however, uh, I started to notice some changes in Jeff. So he would start the day later and later and later than he usually had. And he would finish the day earlier. But then at the same time, I'd be getting emails through at strange times of the night. He would, he had stopped connecting with the usual people he connected with in the office. He had certain people he'd have lunch and, and morning tea with and that had stopped. He was quieter in meetings and I, I could see 
that he was less confident. And when we were catching up to talk about the work he was doing, he was clearly uh, double guessing the decisions he was making. I attempted to, to check in with him on a, on a weekly chat. Uh, and I said to him, look, are you okay? Um, I've just noticed and he cut me off and he said, look, everything's fine, don't worry about it. And because he was older and, and he'd been around for longer than me and, and I had a frame of him being so confident, I let him brush me off. My gut told me something wasn't right though. So I started thinking I really need to sit down and have a, have a proper conversation. Um, but things always seem to get in the way. Um, to be really honest and frank, I made excuses um, as to why that conversation couldn't happen. The, the, the conditions were never perfect. One afternoon, uh, one of my peers came and approached me and raised their concerns about Jeff after he'd gone home. And I'd made a firm commitment with that leader and to myself that I was gonna have a conversation the following, the following day with Jeff. Unfortunately, I never got to make, have that conversation because I got a phone call from his wife uh, later that night that he had attempted to take his life and was, uh, was receiving treatment. So fortunately, he hadn't been successful. That shook me to the core and actually led to me getting some additional support as to how to process and how to think and about that and, and how to deal with it. But it, it's left an impression on me. It's left an impression on me because I had assumed that because someone was a professional, because they were highly credible and highly competent, and because they weren't coming at me, coming to me in a clinical setting, that they would have other means of getting support and other means of getting help. I was, I was very, very wrong. And this is a challenge that so many of us face as leaders. We don't understand all the challenges that people face in their lives. Sometimes all we see is the symptoms. We see the, the poorer performance or the lower engagement or the absenteeism or the presenteeism. And it can be often easier to address the symptoms as opposed to the cause. And it's a pretty, there's a pretty easy reason for that. It's hard. Uh, and we, we often don't know how to even go about starting to have that conversation. But part of this session is about understanding that we all have our ups and downs and sometimes we just need someone to reach out and give us, give us an opportunity to, to have a conversation and, and to break the cycle. So that's what today is about, is understanding uh, what our roles and responsibilities are as leaders to, to have those conversations, when we should have the conversations and to provide some, some tools as to how to have those conversations. So as I mentioned earlier, we all have our ups and downs. So here's a quick video that talks about mental health uh, in the Australian setting. Life is a little like a roller coaster. We all have our ups and downs in life. Sometimes we can find ourselves stuck when we're down and have trouble getting back up. In fact, one in five Australians will experience a mental health issue this year, and close to 50% of all Australians will experience a mental health concern at some point in their life. In this year alone, depression and anxiety will affect over 3 million Australians. But with so many myths and misconceptions about mental health, many worry about what others may think, and therefore remain silent and in fear of how others may view them. 
People struggling with depression don't just feel down for one or two days. Sometimes their sadness can drag on for weeks, months, and in some cases, years. They lose the ability to enjoy even the simple pleasures in life. People suffering with anxiety don't just worry over one thing. Fearful thoughts seem to build up on them no matter what they do. Sometimes they can feel anxious for no reason. People experiencing mental health issues need not feel alone. There are many support resources available, including accessing their employee assistance program or consulting with their doctor. Remember simple things like regular exercise, eating healthy, and getting involved in social activities all can be helpful for both our physical and mental health. Sometimes the little things can make a big difference. If you know someone who seems to be struggling with feelings of sadness or constant worries, show them they're not alone and let them know help is available through all of life's ups and downs. So the end of the video there says show them they're not alone, uh, but that's sometimes easier said than done. Some incredible statistics there. So one in five Australians will experience a mental health issue this year. <clears throat> and I'd probably argue that that number will increase with the current conditions that we're facing. Close to 50% of all Australians will experience a mental health concern at some point, which means that this is a topic that's close to home to so many of us. So our role as leaders isn't to provide clinical support uh, for people. It is just to help them to make sure that to help them understand that they're not alone and to guide them towards whatever support they may need. <clears throat> so what we will be talking about today is the difference between thriving and surviving. And the reason we talk about thriving and surviving is just so that we've got some context as to what it looks like when someone's doing really well and perhaps just, just uh, surviving, just struggling to get by. A model that we use a lot in our programs is the attitude behavior results model. And we'll be unpacking thriving versus surviving using this model. What the model says is that our attitudes, what we think and feel, drive our behaviors. Think about feelings as being like fuel in our fuel tank. And that, that fuel drives the type of behaviors that we engage in. And those behaviors will, will, will have an impact on the results that we get and ultimately, reinforce those attitudes and we can see that model uh, cycling round and round and round. The interesting thing about this model is it can go one of two ways. It can spiral us in positive ways towards our life's goals or in negative ways away from our life's goals. And you can imagine in instances like the ones that we're focused in where people feel trapped alone, isolated, the behaviours they may engage in to cope may not be helpful. Um, people may drink more alcohol, use more drugs, um, have less healthy engagements or relationships with their loved ones. And the results that we'll typically get uh, will be a feeling of a reduced sense of self-worth and, and, and helplessness and hopelessness, as well as any other physical or, or social impacts that they may have. So you can see how this uh, cycle can spiral in an unhelpful way. The great news is though, if we can harness this, it can start to spin in a positive way and, and that's how people can recover. So what does it look like to thrive? Um, a thriving person, as you will know, uh, they're adaptable, they're determined, they're focused. They tend to take life um, in their stride. 
So you can see how the thought, the thinking, the feeling and the actions play out in the table that we've got here. So uh, you tend to see in thriving people more optimism, great, greater purposefulness, greater adaptability and a sense of resilience. That's, that's the thinking they adopted. That in turn drives different types, uh, it drives helpful feelings, confidence, focus, enthusiasm and stability. And the result is great productivity from people. So they feel engaged, they feel productive, they complete things on time, they're less likely to have errors, uh, they're calmer and they're able to respond more effectively to setbacks. On the other side of the equation, however, is understanding, is understanding the behaviours when people are simply surviving. People who are surviving tend to have more of these sorts of behaviours that are obvious in the workplace. So absenteeism, uh, uh, presenteeism, as you can see down there. So they're at work, but they're not really at work. Avoidance. So that might be avoiding tasks, avoiding meetings, avoiding time with you, even potentially as a, as a direct leader and decreases in performance <coughs> will often come out of this as well. This is often a distraction for leaders. They focus on the outcomes as opposed to digging deeper and understanding what's going on for the person. And they might give time and it becomes very quickly a performance management conversation. But what we're encouraging leaders to think about now is, is there something deeper that's going on? What's actually driving these outcomes for people? And again, some instances it will be a performance issue, but others there may be something more to it. So what does it look like for someone operating in a surviving space? Typically, these are the symptoms and experiences they will have. And you may even better reflect on times in your life where you've experienced some of these for yourself. Concentration, memory, um, difficulties, uh, forming clear thoughts, distorted beliefs, intrusive or repetitive and unhelpful thoughts. I know for myself, if I'm simply surviving for a period, the memory and concentration becomes a real challenge for me and uh, can easily waylay things, can lose things, and, and that only feeds back into the cycle of frustration. So those sorts of thoughts drive feelings. Uh, again, those feelings are like fuel in your fuel tank. Frustration, irritability, anxiety, fear, anger, and hopelessness uh, impacts on what, the way that we behave, the things that people see. So if you've got poor concentration and you're feeling frustration and irritable, that of course is gonna have an impact on your ability to complete work tasks, either effectively or on time. Again, the forgetfulness there is impacted by poor memory or deadlines. We can see people become defensive and start to use excuses Avoidance or illogical statements or chaotic statements can sometimes categorize, be categorised by surviving. Being overly self-critical, angry, and again, as we spoke about earlier, things like absenteeism, presenteeism, and isolation from peers. Looking at this table now and reflecting on my experience with Jeff, so many of these symptoms and signs were evident, but I hadn't taken the time to think about the application of those, of those behaviours or those actions in a work setting. <clears throat> so people will have some and all of these and not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to jump on every time or, or address every time someone might have a poor performance or, or might be a bit late or a bit slow. Sometimes people have a bad patch. Um, you know, we've all probably had them, a bit of extra, a bit rude, a bit irritable, 
bit, a bit overly sensitive, perhaps rebellious or selfish. That's not an uncommon experience uh, to have on, on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, perhaps if you're, you're tired or, or you've had a bad time. The challenge is when that bad patch really evolves into mental illness, where we start to see the more significant uh, impacts, such as perform- drops in performance um, and, and saying and talking about things that don't make sense. It is worth noting, though, that even if it is a bad patch that someone's experiencing, this, uh, this support, this advocate support lead process is incredibly important. So we have those conversations in a supportive manner at any time that we may be concerned about someone. So we're going to set up now and look at the tools to enable us to approach these conversations in a helpful manner. Um, But before we do that, I'm going to introduce you to a concept called the social brain. So our brains will will register physical and social threat in very different ways. If you use an fRMI machine uh, and expose someone to a physical or a social threat, the same parts of the brains are largely illuminated. So that means that social threat is a huge challenge, not only for uh, the people who are experiencing these challenging conditions, as we heard in the video earlier, there's social stigma or, or perceptions that people may not be accepting, but it's a real challenge for us as leaders as well. Um, it will be that, that anxiety or fear that you may feel in going in to have that conversation that is triggered by the social brain. And in hindsight, again, going through my Jeff experience, that is why I avoided that conversation so long. So I'll introduce you to the social brain uh, so that you can uh, understand how this can impact on the way we make people feel in these conversations, but also the way that we feel in approaching those conversations. <coughs> Humans are social beings that thrive when working in groups. Throughout history, we have enhanced our chances of survival by collectively sharing things such as resources, knowledge, and workloads. Alternatively, isolation or rejection from a group could have decreased our survival chances. As a result, our brain is highly aware of our ongoing social status and possible threats or rewards to this. Today, the workplace is one of the biggest social environments the brain experiences. Our brain is constantly providing us with feedback on our social interactions with others. We need to know when things are working in our favor or when our social situation may be under threat. Our brain interprets our social interactions through the use of neural pathways and chemical messages commonly used for pleasure and pain. For example, when our brain recognizes potential rewards from a social interaction, it releases chemicals along the same neural pathways associated with pleasure, making us feel physically good. When we feel threatened, rejected, or taken advantage of, the same pathways that tell us we are in physical pain are activated. Our brains don't always operate in isolation to one another. We often trigger a threat or reward response to the people around us. We may not even realize we are doing this. So the next time you interact with someone at work, consider what social messages you may be sending and the impact you may be having on their brain. As the video stated, we have an impact on how we make people feel. Um, 
and we will trigger either a threat or a reward response within the people that we engage with. So thinking about that experience for our people is useful to consider in the way that we set up for the session, uh, for the conversation, for the supportive conversation, but it's also to think about in relation to understanding ourselves and what we might be experiencing and going into that supportive conversation. <clears throat> Building trust and rapport is critical in this conversation. So uh, again, considering the social aspects of, of how we have the conversation with them uh, and, and looking at, at making sure we set things up the right way and not putting people on the spot or embarrassing them in front of people becomes incredibly important. Of course, if you've had the opportunity to build a, a relationship of trust and, and psychological safety with uh, the person before the conversation, and it makes these conversations so much easier. If you're wondering about the tools to build greatest trust and psychological safety, uh, feel free to jump on the Senate's website. We've got webinars and, and resources that you can explore in relation to that as well. One of the other key aspects to consider in approaching these supportive conversations is the power of questions. Our brains are hardwired to search for the answer, answers to questions. If I ask you what's two plus two, your brain, without even having to put conscious energy into it, will have pushed the answer four into your conscious brain. You might not say it out loud, but you certainly will have, uh, your brain will have given you that answer. The interesting thing about the brain is the quality of question determines the quality of answer. So, Asking people questions which help them process the information effectively or that they're experiencing becomes so important. Why can't you just snap yourself out of this mood, for example, is going to give a very uh, different type of brain response to what is allowing you to cope as well as you are during this challenging period. So questions and, uh, are a critical part of these supportive conversations. So supportive conversations, as we're going to explore now, come in five steps. And each step will have a checklist for you as a leader to consider as you uh, approach that conversation. So the, the five steps, as you can see on the screen, <clears throat> are prepare, inquire, identify, plan, and follow up. Preparation is key uh, in these conversations. Actually taking the time with a pen or paper to, to write down and think through how you're going to approach the conversation is so incredibly useful. It's useful because it helps you determine things like what's the best time and place to conduct this conversation and what's the best place and way to approach having the conversation. Setting that time up and, and coming up with a plan takes away some of the excuses for yourself to avoid having the conversation in the first place, but it also enables a sense of confidence and real consideration to make sure that the way you're approaching it is in the most respectful and helpful way possible. Checking in with yourself prior to the conversation is really, really important as well. How are you feeling going into the conversation? Are you frustrated about the performance issues that you may have been experiencing with them? Are you concerned about your ability to have the conversation in an effective way? Um, what's going on for you at that point in time? Because your ability to be aware of your own feelings and come in with an open mind and in a calm state is gonna be critical in ensuring that you enable an open conversation that helps you understand where that person is really coming from. Finally, checking in, what are my current assumptions? What frames do I have around this particular individual? And again, thinking 
thinking, really challenging yourself to think about, all right, well, I'm going to have a challenging, I'm going to have a supportive conversation, but I really just think that they're slacking off and being lazy. Uh, looking at those frames, looking at those attitudes becomes really important if you want this conversation to be successful. Again, if you're, um, if you're really struggling to know how to, how to prepare for this conversation, it, it might be useful just to talk in more generic terms with your HR partner or, or a peer that you can trust. Once we've set the conversation up, uh, being prepared to go into the conversation with an inquiring and curious mindset becomes really important. So in order to create a sense of psychological safety and trust within the room, it's, it's very important that we think about how we're being perceived. Um, again, we want to come across, make sure that our non-verbal communications are congruent with our verbal communications. So give out, make sure we've got plenty of time, ensure that we're, we're presenting empathy, we're calm, we're attentive. Often the tools we'll use as psychologists are things like mirroring, where without being specific, we'll match this, this sort of body language in, to a certain extent, as we'll see from, from the person that we're having a supportive conversation with. Share with the person the reasons that you're having the conversation with them. Let them know it's because you care um, and that it's you care and the reason that you've got concerns is because of the things that you've seen, whether it's the energy levels or, or um, appearing distracted, but try to avoid going specifically into the performance conversation now. Try to, try to position it as it, this is just a conversation about me identifying that something's not quite, quite the norm with you and I just want to understand what's going on for you. And as it says in the next step, think about how you can open, ask open questions to invite the team member to share information in their own way about what's going on for them. <clears throat> so a question we'll often ask is, can you help me understand how you have been feeling lately? A trick here, uh, just to, to be aware of, is to be comfortable with silence. So often we'll ask a question like that, give one second, two second, the awkwardness builds uh, and we start to wonder, have I said the wrong thing? Have I done the wrong thing? And we'll often start to speak again. As if we go back to the earlier uh, think, feel, act um, table, people who are distressed, um, they may not be thinking as clearly as they normally would or they might be having challenge a challenge gathering their thoughts. Sometimes they might not be expecting the conversation. So they're just thinking about the best way to articulate what they're trying to say. So being comfortable with silence and enabling that person appropriate time to respond is really, really important. Although it might feel very, very uncomfortable for you. <clears throat> Step three is identify. So take some time to identify with the person and help them feel like they're truly being listened to and, to and connected with. Reflective listening is a great tool to use in this instance. So reflective listening refers to showing the person that you understand what they're saying in your own words. So an example, as you can see here, is it sounds like you found yourself overwhelmed with worries and have not been sleeping well of late. Have I understood you correctly? So that simple reflective listening is often enough to help the person feel heard, to help the person feel listening to, and it will often lead for them to further elaborate on the challenges that, that they're, they're currently facing. 
Next is check in with the person about what they're currently doing to manage over this difficult time. So you're experiencing these feelings. Are you doing anything about uh, managing those feelings? Be prepared that they may be already talking to a doctor or a support person, but also be prepared that they may be using tools or mechanisms to cope, which might not actually be that helpful. Uh, things like alcohol or drugs or, or like. The next, uh, the next point on the checklist to consider is to check in with them to understand what support that they would like from you as a leader. So actually understanding if or if any, if you are playing a role in the current experience that they're having or if the organisation is playing a current role in the experience that they're having and what the business could do to potentially support them over this tricky time. Again, um, part, of the, part of the checklist and part of the check-in process also needs to be about being clear with the person about your organisation's confidentiality policy. So again, uh, framing that conversation as confidential is, is generally 100% okay. Um, but we do need to be aware that if someone expresses an intention to harm themselves or someone else, we do have an obligation as a leader to, to report that further. And there's no harm in expressing that within the people that we're having these conversations with. Uh, so again, there's some more checks, some more suggested checks here. Again, asking the person about how work may be contributing to their symptoms uh, and how, how what's going on might be impacting on their ability to, to do their role are all opportunities for you to explore what's going on for that person further in the identify step. So this becomes a very much a two-way conversation. I wouldn't expect that you'd have this checklist in front of you, but it's being prepared to cover all of these bases. <clears throat> step four is um, implement the plan. So at step four, we're actually moving someone into action. So we're setting them up with a next step. Uh, so you've checked in with them. You, we've identified what's going on. What are we going to do after this? Are they going to get a certain level of help? Uh, are they going to connect with EAP? Or in some instances, it might be just that they're going to commit to checking in with you next week to see how they're feeling. So taking that time to set a commitment, to set a plan of, 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 uh, of what's next and following up becomes really important. So again, making sure that the plan has actually been followed and checking in with them uh, is a really critical step in ensuring that we're assisting people through this supportive conversation process. So at a high level, uh, and this is a normally a half day or a one day workshop broken up into about 45 minutes, there's some of the steps that we can start to consider in planning for those conversations. But there are, there are typical barriers that you might come up against in having these supportive conversations or, or not barriers or things that may derail the conversation or leaders may typically raise as challenges. The first one which leaders are often faced with is how to support people who are incredibly upset. So you invite the person into the room, you share with them uh, your concerns uh, and, and offer them your support and they, they, they become very emotional. What do you do in this instance? Of course, ensuring that you're in a private room, uh, acknowledging that it's okay to express feelings and giving them time to work, work through the emotion 
is really, really important. So it might take a few minutes uh, to enable people to start to, to work through this. But it can also then be useful to start to explore this with people. So ask them, oh, I can see that you're, you're really upset right now. How long have you felt this sad? On one to 10, on a scale of one to 10, one being um, fine, 10 being bad, how bad would you describe your emotions right now? Or your, how you're feeling right now, rather? Um, and then you can also ask them whether they would like assistance in, in managing their emotions. And if they were to ask uh, to, to say yes, then there's some simple tools you can use to, to the distraction techniques that can give people an opportunity to, to gather themselves. So asking them what are the capital cities of Australia, for example, can redirect that attention. Or uh, uh, another useful one is saying, well, uh, I'm gonna ask you to do a counting activity. I'm going to ask you to take 179, the number 179 and subtract five and continue down to as low a number as you can. So 179 minus five. See if you can, you can uh, count in that way. Once you've got people uh, a little bit managed, encourage them to breathe. Um, so box breathing exercise, breathing in for five, hold for five, out for five, for example, are tools that can help people regather their thoughts. Of course, in that, in that upset, if someone expresses a suicidal ideation, we've got a responsibility to assist them, uh, whether it's encourage them to see their medical practitioner and supporting them to do so, or it, at, in the worst case scenario, if they're not willing to get that support, it may even mean calling triple uh, zero. Suicidal ideations, uh, just again, your job isn't to, to assess the level of suicidal ideation, but the severity uh, or the likelihood is often measured through uh, the person's planning. Do they have a clear plan as to how they would go about it? The lethality of the plan. So how likely should they implement that plan? Uh, would it be to kill them? And their access to the resources that would enable them to commit that suicide. So if you've got someone who's got a very clear plan, uh, resources and tools to do that, then it is cause to be very, very concerned and to, of course, do whatever needs to be done to get them the support they need. You may also find yourself in a situation where you've offered someone support and they don't want the support. In that instance, it's it's about acknowledging that, that um, yes, you don't want to talk to me uh, and that's okay and I'm not gonna force you to have a conversation with me, but it's about offering options. It's about offering, is there another leader or person in the business that you would feel comfortable to have this conversation with because it's my duty of care to check in with you and I'm really, really concerned right now. Or would you be willing to have a conversation with, with the EAP provider and I'll circle back around with you. So if you are, again, if you've got that feeling in your stomach, like I spoke about earlier, and you're really concerned about this person, look at alternative ways to get them the support they need if they're not willing to talk to you. And finally, supporting people over disclose. Again, people will say lots of things when they're upset and distressed, um, and they may not all be rational and they all might not all be helpful and they're often not reflective of where that person is, you know, how that person really feels. So my encouragement is to express some empathy, acknowledge their feelings, reassure them that the conversation is confident and to maintain that confidence, unless of course they're, they're, um, they're, there's a threat to themselves or, or someone else.
another uh, question we commonly get is, where's the line between a supportive conversation or performance management? <clears throat> and this is a tricky one. Um, it's a tricky one because uh, people can have performance management and of course, there's nothing, they're just disengaged or disinterested in the business. So seeing if there's a link, seeing if you're seeing some of those signs that we spoke about earlier um, around the energy or the engagement or, or if you're feeling that they're generally low and flat, that might be more of a cause to have a supportive conversation over, uh, over a performance conversation. It's a tricky one. So it's a real case by case instance. What I can say is that if you're at all concerned that there might be going on for someone, uh, some, some challenges going on for someone, a supportive conversation sooner, checking in, uh, the sooner you can do that, the better. Uh, and sometimes that can actually mean that performance management isn't required later on down the track. So what we've provided you there is some tools uh, to start to think about uh, how to have supportive conversations with, uh, with anyone in your team that you feel may need them. We'll be sending out some uh, tools and resources after this that reinforce this messaging, as we'll also be providing a slide deck and the recording after this as well. What we'd also like to do is an extend an offer to participants in today's session to have a chat with a confidential chat with one of our consultant psychologists. So if there is a, a supportive conversation that you need to prepare for and you would like some assistance to do so, I encourage you to get in contact with us uh, and we can line you up with one of our consultants for a complimentary planning session to help you work out well, what work out what your action plan to approach this conversation may be. So just while that's taking place, uh, just while you're thinking about that, um, I'll now open it up to questions if anyone has any questions about what I've shared today. Thank you, Anthony. We have one question so far. Um, it's um, all the training and information I've had over the years have indicated that distraction is not a healthy way of processing emotions. Is this healthy for short-term recovery or of being overly emotional, such as to stop crying, etc., or are you saying it's okay to use long-term as well? No, it's uh, distraction is, it's, it's just simply a short-term mechanism um, based upon dealing with something in the moment. So when we're feeling incredibly distressed like that, it's very difficult to engage our conscious brain. So Yes, very much, you know, long-term distraction just means you're burying things and often things can get worse. 100% agree with that, but short-term can be useful to help people engage in a conversation. Okay, um, we don't have any questions just now, but um, in past experience, um, I know that they can still start. Oh yes, here's another one. All right, um, Frank asks, hi, normally these conversations would be face-to-face. -face. Any suggestions uh, I think he means regarding that? Look, um, yes, um, I can't get to have a conversation face to face is often, a, is often a reason that leaders will give to avoid having those conversations. I think a phone call um, that is prompt and, and, you know, and, uh, and related particularly to what you've seen, uh, the clo closer to what you've seen is much more effective than delaying something for months and then having to recall the situation. So recency becomes a very important factor. 
We've also got a lot of awesome tools at the moment. Um, things like as we're using our Zoom or Teams or whatever the case may be, where you can have those conversations is useful. Remember, a lot of counselling hotlines and things like that are all on the phone. So it, you can have a very meaningful conversation with someone on phone or using one of these tools. So sooner rather than later is better. Okay, um, Diane says this has been an awesome webinar. Thank you, Anthony. Um, uh, another anonymous one. In some situations, people don't want to use the employee assistance program. What other suggestions can we provide or suggest in the moment? Yes, um, so you can go and talk to your GP and your GP can give you a referral to a mental health program, which is funded by the government. I think it's seven sessions. It's been a little while since, um, since I've uh, looked specifically at it, but there definitely is an, a, a possibility to go on a mental health plan through your GP. Uh, and that will often receive a lot of subsidy from the government to be able to do that and get you access to a psychologist and support. Um. What could, uh, anonymous again, what could you do as a middle manager to encourage the senior manager to have the conversation with someone you are concerned about if you have raised it before and nothing has been done? Uh, look, um, probably again for a senior, a senior manager is um, educating them on some of the things that you've spoken about today. So getting into the detail of why you're concerned and what you're concerned about. But what I'd also encourage is if, say, this person's a peer in your organisation, a peer can have an effective, supportive conversation with another peer, and it can be really, really impactful. So checking in with them as a peer, using these tools to prepare for that conversation, um, if you're very, very concerned, um, is an option as well. So again, it's probably about helping, the, helping that senior leader understand the extent of what you're seeing and raising and really directly raising the flag for them, but also not waiting to take action if you're very concerned and being prepared to have that conversation itself. Okay, um, someone else has asked by the chat panel. Um, sometimes I get emotion when involved with a supportive conversation as a manager to the team member. How do, I how do we detach ourselves from their situation? Uh, we're talking here about transference and counter-transference. One of the biggest challenges um, that we have uh, as clinicians practicing. Um, I think I assume when you say um, that you have trouble managing your emotion is that if you see someone else cry or become upset, you you mirror that emotion. It's I think taking the time beforehand to prepare yourself mentally to ensure that you're as calm as you possibly can in the conversation is really, really useful. Um, and even potentially talking to someone that you trust about how to prepare for that conversation uh, can help you to go into that conversation in a way that means that you don't necessarily uh, mirror what's going on for the person. I'd encourage you not to detach actually. Um, empathy is a critical part of having these conversations. Um, however, matching the person's level of emotion can sometimes distract from the person themselves. So again, making sure that we're in the best possible headspace we can to have that conversation uh, is probably the best thing we can do. Uh, and if that means talking to someone about how to prepare for that, then, then I suggest you do that. 
Okay, um, I think we're all through those questions, Anthony. Um, this is, uh, obviously you've seen there's some really good feedback. It's been a great session. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll just reiterate that I, I'll send details of the complimentary session and links to the tools um, and contact details for Anthony at Centus um, in the email later today. Is there anything else you want to say, Anthony? No, look, thank you for taking the time to invest in the wellbeing of your people. Uh, taking the time to attend this session shows that uh, you've got a genuine care for those people in your business and they'll feel that in the conversations we have. So take care of each other and, and get in touch if you'd like further support. That's great. All right, everyone, have a great day and um, we'll see, uh, see and hear you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.